360 degrees. High high, 360 degrees. High high, 306, 306, 360 degrees. High high. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Full Circle, your cultural affairs radio magazine produced by members of the KPFA First Voice Apprenticeship Program. Broadcasting from right here in Huchin, occupied Ohlone territory, also known to settlers as Berkeley. Well, the housing crisis for tenants, particularly low-income tenants, has existed for quite some time. For many, those situations have been exacerbated by the coronavirus epidemic. On this episode of Full Circle, we take a closer look at the housing situation for tenants in California. Tonight, we'll hear from Ritu Modi, the supervising attorney at Central Legal in Oakland. We'll also hear from Philip Rapier, a tenant rights defense attorney. And Greg Jackson, an attorney and tenant activist, will talk about co-op properties. And we'll kick off the show tonight with a short update on the six forced to strike camped outside the Antioch Police Department. All that tonight on Full Circle. I am again your host, Freewell and Franklin. Keep it locked right here to Full Circle on KPFA. Again, welcome to Full Circle, the weekly show produced by apprentices of the First Voice Apprenticeship Program. I am your host tonight, Freewell and Franklin, and yes, tonight we will be talking about rental housing. But to kick off the show tonight, I want to bring you an update on last week's show and the six forced to strike, occupying space outside the Antioch Police Department, now going on 14 days. If you listened to last week's show, you learned of the six forced to strike. They are currently on 14 days camped out the Antioch Police Department. What started as a hunger strike then turned into an Occupy camp and is now morphing into basically just sleeping on the premises with no tents, canopies, or major supplies. After a threatened eviction of the occupiers was thwarted by massive community support, the strikers were invited into the police station to speak with Chief Tammany Brooks about their demands. Basically, the strikers said the meeting did not go well and that they were not going to be allowed to have tents and supplies like ice chests, canopies, and other stuff outside the police department. The day after the meeting with the chief, the occupiers were basically left alone as the community support had returned to their homes. Police then swept in and raided the camp, confiscating some of their protest signs, tents, and other supplies. They were told they were not allowed to sleep there or have their gear, so they packed it up and took it all away. But their chairs and some blankets and sleeping bags remained. Tonight will be their third night defying the order of no sleeping on the premises, and I'll try to keep you updated as their action continues. Remember, you can follow them on social media at 6, the number 6, forced 2, the number 2, strike. Six forced to strike. That's on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Also go to kpfaapprentice.org 
to hear last week's hour-long show about their protest and their demands. That was last week's show. Check it out on kpfaapprentice.org. Now, let's get into the housing and rental part of our show. As of October 2019, a statewide rent and eviction control ordinance was passed. However, with the extended quarantine and shelter-in-place orders, also business restrictions due to COVID-19, many California counties passed emergency housing moratoriums of their own. Up next, Ms. M talks with Ritu Modi, Tenant Rights Managing Attorney at Centro Legal de la Raza, which has been a mainstay in providing information and assistance to tenants. They talked about the provisions of the Alameda County Eviction Moratorium. Hi, this is Ms. M for Full Circle, and I'm here with Ritu Modi, who is the Managing Attorney at Centro Legal in Oakland. Greetings, Ritu. Welcome to our show. Thanks for having me. First of all, we'd like to have you tell us about the current Alameda County Tenant Protection Moratorium, please. Absolutely. The current Alameda County Eviction Moratorium protects all uh, tenants who live in Alameda County. That includes unincorporated territory and land as well as cities from March 24th through December 31st, 2020 at the minimum. And then after that, 60 days after which the local emergency ends. And under that eviction moratorium, the protections you receive are a number of them. But the first and most important is that all causes of action or notices served for the legal processes known as unlawful detainer, but essentially for an eviction, at this point are considered illegal except for three specific examples. And so it's not just for non-payment of rent, but any eviction for any reason. And that's because our county recognizes that home is the foundation of everything right now. And to put people in a situation where they do not have jobs um, and the economy is not present for them would subject them not just to COVID and the pandemic, but legacies and generations of pain and going backwards um, in education and home ownership rights in voting and a number of things. You mentioned exceptions. What are they? So under the Alameda County eviction moratorium, you cannot be evicted for any reason unless it is a imminent public health and safety threat. We believe it's a very narrow understanding of the law, which means that it would probably only apply in a very specific scenarios. We don't know what those are yet. And you said there are two more exceptions? Oh, yes. So the other two that are important to consider are if you are red tagged, which essentially means if a court or government agency has ordered the property to be vacated, or if a landlord is seeking to permanently remove the property from the rental market, which would be under a law called the Ellis Act. Are all tenants covered, even those living as roommates with the landlord or in a duplex with the property owner? Well, they, they would be covered. So it's not necessarily just if you live with, if your landlord lives with you and you share a bathroom or a kitchen. If you live with your landlord in Alameda County, right now you are protected. Okay, so those are the unlawful detainer or eviction protections. What are the other protections? 
one of the big protections is that for any unpaid rent between March 24th, 2020 through um, at least December 31st, 2020, that can never be used to instigate an unlawful detainer eviction process for you ever. Um, and then all the rent you owe from that period turns into consumer debt. So it cannot be reattained through the unlawful detainer process. It actually goes through a small claims court. And that starts tolling 12 months after the local public health emergency is lifted. So you don't have to pay it immediately because it recognizes that not everybody's going to have a job or economy is not going to bounce back immediately. But 12 months after the local health emergency ends, at that point, you do have to be able to pay back all the rent, and it can be claimed through a small claims process by the landlord. So it's up to either the county or the state to then say when they deem that the emergency has ended. Is that correct? It's up to the county. And so the local health emergency was declared by the Board of Supervisors, but they have given the Department of Public Health in Alameda County the right to also end it based off of a variety of criteria. And so when our local public health emergency ends, that is when the eviction moratorium after 60 days would be lifted. Okay, so this is at least through December. December 31st, 2020. And then if the local public health emergency is ongoing after that point, then you would continue to be protected under the eviction moratorium. And then let's say they decide the local public health emergency ends February 2nd. The eviction moratorium protections end 60 days after. So that would be after April 2nd. That is wonderful. My next question is, are rent increases allowed during this time frame? Our county has not specifically legislated around rent increases, but it depends on, for example, if you live in Oakland in Alameda County, there is law around how high the rent increases can go. And so that would apply. And for Oakland's rent control ordinance during the emergency period, you can't have a rent increase of more than Oakland's yearly CPI, which currently is set at 2.7%. Otherwise, you are protected under a law called AB 1482, and that limits rent increases to 10%. In addition, the attorney general uh, also says a landlord cannot raise the tenant's rent above 10% during the statewide state of emergency. Okay, and so the the bill that you mentioned? AB 1482 is a statewide rent cap. And that's been in effect since before the state of emergency. And I can, if you would like, I can talk a little bit more about that. Yes, but, yes please. Yeah, so AB 1482 caps annual rent increases at 5% plus the rate of inflation for most of the states, um, what they call like multi-housing. And it's took effect as of January 1st, 2020. It also requires landlords to show, quote-unquote, just cause to evict tenants. And so that's all outlined in the statute. But not every single property is covered by AB 1482. And actually, which properties are covered versus not covered, I would, I would speak to an attorney specifically. And so one of the areas, again, is single-family homes are a little bit complicated under AB. 
Let me just backtrack a little. So if you do receive a rent increase and you don't pay the rent increase, are you are you protected under the moratorium for not paying yeah. that increase? So yeah. even though you get a rent increase and it's legitimate and every, all the things have been done to make it a proper rent increase, you still... You still are, yep, you are protected right now because there's a full-on moratorium on all evictions except for the three exceptions that I named earlier. The LSA, public health and safety, and then if your building is red tagged. So that rent increase, if it's legal, then that amount of rent will be due as consumer debt over time. So it still cannot be used against okay. you to get you out of your place, but you will owe it. Okay. What actions, if any, does a tenant need to take to be covered, to be protected? So you are automatically protected. Now, if a landlord asks for documentation of a COVID-related reason why you can't pay rent or, for, you know, whatever the situation is, like let's say it's a nuisance situation, you have 45 days to provide that kind of documentation. And then the others or 30 days after the state, the local public health emergency is lifted. So a tenant has to provide it to their landlord either within 45 days of the landlord asking or within 30 days of the local health emergency ending, whichever is later. I'm not clear. Are tenants protected whether or not they provide documentation? They are protected, but a landlord can ask for documentation. And if what the documentation is around is like, hey, I didn't pay rent because of all these reasons related to COVID, like childcare, I lost my job, I, I myself got sick and people had to take care of me or I had to take care of somebody who is sick. If they ask for it, a tenant can respond to them in 45 days or 30 days after the local health emergency ends. So the provision that the unpaid rent becomes consumer debt? Mm-hmm would still apply or would not still apply if the landlord asks for documentation and the tenant doesn't provide it? Is it then still consumer debt or then is it a, an unlawful detainer situation? It's still considered consumer debt. So any rent that is not paid during the time of COVID for any reason is considered consumer debt simply because the situations that people are facing right now are so complicated and there's no way to separate what's happening in your life from COVID-19. Now, do these protections apply to non-citizens as well? It's all tenants in Alameda County. Great. You, you've mentioned a couple of times about contacting an attorney. I know that you were at Centro Legal, you help a, a lot of people what are there any qualifications for um, tenants who want to get assistance from your organization? There aren't too many. We do have some income limitations, but generally Centro Legal is able to help most tenants. We are highly focused on low-income, Black, Indigenous, people of color communities, immigrants, refugees, folks who are neurodivergent or queer essentially people who often face the worst harms from systems of oppression, but there are not too many limits. 
And then there are other organizations throughout Alameda County that you could also call, including East Bay Community Law Center, especially if you're based in Berkeley, Bay Area Legal Aid, um, which is particularly helpful if you're in subsidized housing, Eviction Defense Center, uh, Legal Assistance for Seniors, um, if you're elderly, Asian Pacific Islander Legal Outreach. So there are a number of folks who do provide direct services. That's great. And if a tenant wants to contact Centro Legal, how would they do that? The best way is probably to call our clinic. So I will say the phone number. It's 510-437-1554. And Re- repeat not- <laughs> that, please. Repeat that number for us, please. Sure. 510-437-1554. Okay. So if you call that, you will speak with one of our folks to do intake. They'll ask you some questions. And then they will slot you to talk to an attorney about your individual case. Okay. And is there anything else that's important for tenants to know during these troubling times? I think a few things. So Alameda County and City of Oakland, there are a few emergency rental assistance funds. There's not a ton of money. You can't necessarily get a lot out of it, but there are some specifically allotted for COVID. There are some that are allotted for rental assistance because other things have happened in your life. So if you speak with an attorney, um, there are requirements. It is worth asking or bringing it up, and your attorney or somebody who is advising you could tell you what the criteria is for each of the programs. So I think that's just an important thing to know. I also think um, something else that's really important is that We've heard a lot about landlord harassment right now. So illegal notices being served or being forced to sign documents, just don't. If you're a tenant, don't sign anything right now. None of these notices served are legal. If your landlord is calling you all the time for money or harassing you in other ways, like showing up and watching all your moves, yelling insults at you, all this stuff we hear from our clients, you are not forced to leave. And again, it's helpful to speak to an attorney to think about if there are ways we can help stop this. Almost everyone we have worked with really wants to pay their rent. And I think similarly, many, many landlords do want to work with their tenants to figure out what to do because everybody's suffering right now. And so we encourage you to always check in about your situation with an attorney. But if you're facing any of these really difficult situations or harassment or retaliation, like definitely, definitely call Centro or one of the other orgs that feel right to you. It's very, very intimidating, and we really want to help support people right now who are facing so much as it is. And the last thing I would say to tenants, and I I think this is just important to put in the context of where our country and our world is at, is housing justice is very, very much deeply part of many of the other racial justice movements happening all over the country. The majority of tenants who have been affected both by COVID-19 and by landlord harassment and by eviction processes have been like Black, Latinx, Indigenous, low-income folks. And so as you think about housing justice and you think about how you want to treat, as a landlord, if you think about how you want to treat tenants, And as a tenant, if you think about your rights, they're deeply, deeply connected to both Black Lives Matter and all racial equity movements. Because at the end of the day, oppression hits the same group the hardest over and over again. And at Centro, we really believe that. And so, like I said, really reach out. If you have questions, reach out. And all the other organizations I named are also really strong, thoughtful organizations. Thank you so much. Absolutely. 
Welcome back to Full Circle right here on 94.1 FM, KPFA and KPFA.org. Those were the voices of our own Miss M, co-director of the First Voice Apprenticeship Program and executive producer for this show, Full Circle. She was speaking with Ritu Modi, Tenants' Rights Managing Attorney at Centro Legal de la Raza. Remember, we will have links to all relevant information and to Centro Legal on our website, kpfaapprentice.org, just a little bit after the show tonight. Let's take a short music break, and we'll be right back with more Full Circle on KPFA. listening to Full Circle on KPFA and KPFA.org. That was My House by Flo Rida. And another big shout out to Miss M for providing some audio for tonight. And as we continue, Miss M brings us these comments from Philip Rapier. Philip Rapier has been a tenant defense attorney in the East Bay for 20 plus years. Up next, we'll hear his take on the nature of rental housing in our country. I want to talk about ideas that I think cause us to be where we are. And they're, they're the, like these assumptions, these assumed ideas that we don't see. And so getting to that is not easy. What I like to talk about is the underlying nature of housing issues that we face. That's not the issues that appear on the surface that we deal with all the time, like finance, budget, zoning, but rather the ideas that are beneath the surface because they are the foundation, I believe, of why 
we are in the situation that we're in now with the housing crisis. In a very interesting, odd and interesting sense, I think the housing issue we face now is exactly akin to the police abuse problem. In this way, those people who don't want to see fundamental change, they'll say, and you hear this all the time, it's just some individual bad officers. Just weed out the bad officers. So they don't see systemic problems. And so for them, there's no need for fundamental or systemic change. In other words, what that means is you leave the power structure as it is. And you just shuffle the personnel. A progressive understanding, to the contrary, says that the system itself is a part of the problem. For example, in the States, we have the highest degree of inequality of all of the industrialized nations, the highest. That creates its own problems and issues. And so when you ask the police to enforce the rules of society in a society with a massive degree of inequality, then you're going to have problems right from the beginning because there's a problem in the system that's issuing the rules. So what that means for me is that the housing issue is not a bad landlord problem. Just like the police problem, it's a systemic problem. And if we don't see that, then we can't address, let alone change the cause of the problem. I've been a tenant lawyer for many years, and after doing really just hundreds and hundreds of eviction defense cases, I come to see that it's that the systemic forces, just like with police brutality, the system is driving us to this idea that housing is only or primarily for the deserving, the hardworking, as opposed to saying that it's a human right. And all kinds of people say, look, I can't live here anymore. Uh, prices, especially housing prices, are too high, and I can't afford it, and i got to move. And I think that we need to think about what if, instead of capital controlling our lives, what if we control capital? Because if I say I've got to move out of town because I can't afford it, that's capital controlling me. It's controlling us. It's driving us out. What if we control capital? And a good example of that, a really good example, is rent control. What rent control says, in essence, is that, okay, you can raise the rent, but only by amount that democratic process allows. So what that is, is that is the, that's the insertion of democratic values on capital market. And instead of us being driven out by high prices, maybe we could control the prices and have a stable, safe, predictable, reliable community. And so the lesson there is that we should, we have to, and we are now moving towards a more humane system, a system that takes values other than profit into account.
And I think that is incredibly valuable. That's my statement. Welcome back to Full Circle on 94.1 FM, KPFA. And that was the voice of tenant defense attorney Philip Rapier and some of his thoughts on our current housing situation for rentals. Now we turn to a conversation between two graduate apprentices on community land ownership and co-ops. This is graduate apprentices Sarah Blanco and Greg Jackson. Joining us now is Greg Jackson. Greg is a native of Oakland with deep family roots who feels fortunate to live within blocks of his family that now spans three generations. He is deeply committed to achieving economic equity in the East Bay through collective ownership and democratic decision-making. Recognizing the many social problems rooted in the unequal distribution of wealth and decision-making power, Greg focused his law school research on international cooperatives. During this During his internship with Sustainable Economies Law Center, he created a pilot program for youth-led cooperative development. As a 2018 Equal Justice Works Legal Fellow, Greg aims to increase collective decision-making and cooperative ownership in East Oakland. He holds a BA in philosophy from San Diego State University and a JD from Golden Gate University School of Law. Greg also serves on the steering committee of the Oakland Climate Action Coalition and mentors at Youth Impact Hub. I love reading this part. Greg enjoys art, travel, and meaningful conversation in his free time. Conversation that we intend to have now. Thank you, Greg, for joining us again on La Onda Bajita, KPFA, Pacifica Radio. Hey, Sarita. It's good to hear your voice again. It's been a long time. You are no stranger to La Onda Bajita. The last time that you joined me in conversation, Trump had just been elected. Wait, oh no, it was the other travesty. The uh, station was about to go under. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, no, if I left the country, what would happen? (laughs) I got the two mixed up. um, Congratulations, first of all, on your accomplishments and for the JD Thanks. It's been like how many years since the KPFA apprenticeship? And uh, wow, so much has happened. Yeah, definitely. And so you and I were in the same cohort in the apprenticeship program, First Voice Apprenticeship here at KPFA. I'd really like to start off asking you just what's on your mind right now? I'm both like concerned, frustrated, feeling like super urgent the time is now to like correct all of this the killings and like the needless murders that have happened because i don't personally want to like experience this anymore i don't want to be scrolling on instagram and then like come across another dead body slain at the hands of the police and i think that a lot of people are feeling that way now um even though we're like kind of in the bit in the middle of um, a pandemic. Um, we've been told that, you know, the coronavirus is super deadly and, um, you know, all of these folks are going out and protesting despite that because um, it becomes too much to bear. And at some point, like, change has to happen or, like, why are we doing this? Another beautiful life taken under a system 
that was, I mean, I hate to say it, but it's true that it was created for that, created to, to bring us down and, and maybe even to kill us as, as people of color. How do you propose or how do you personally go about each day learning something new or teaching something new when all of this is around us? Um, it, it's heavy. Um, it's also a choice. Um, and I, I can't let myself be consumed with anger. Um, the work of building the next economy is too important. And I totally honor and recognize the folks that need to be out there putting their bodies on the line really during this pandemic and making sure that the conversation can't be dropped. Because we've done that before, had lots of protests, conversation dropped, another potty slain. Now we're going through this trauma loop again. And I'm pretty sure none of us want to do this anymore. And so um, I think what's important to know is that all of it is important. The people on the streets, the people in the radio, the people posting the tweets, the people <laughs> the people who are naysayers, <laughs> it's all important because it all is leading to where we're trying to get to. And <sighs> can I be controversial for a moment? Of course. I'm going to say I'm very grateful for Trump and for him being president because... Thank you. Um, I'm sorry, pardon me, I would like to take that back. <laughs> then no, you can't. I'm <laughs> just kidding. Um everything is coming to light and um the lines are being drawn without us having to draw them and i think the time is now and <laughs> like uh, the the u.s government can't make it look pretty anymore they don't have obama they don't have bill clinton they don't have <laughs> i don't know about george bush i i mean he would distract us somehow but Trump is like such a unique president and such like a lightning rod that initially, right when he became president, like folks knew like, oh my God, what the heck is America? And now we're like dealing with that crisis of like trying to like figure out what our identity is. And do we want it to be Trump? <laughs> or do we want it to be something else? And I know for certain I don't want it to be Biden, but I don't really trust the Democratic establishment, the Republican establishment. I think the two-party system is stupid and it uh, doesn't work, um, as well as the Electoral College. I'm an attorney that doesn't believe in the legal system. <laughs> I just wanted to learn how it works a bit so I could help out. Um, <sighs> So I guess um, to sum all of that up, it's everyone plays their part. Listen to your heart and figure out what your part is. Play it. Know that we're moving to the new economy. Hold that intention in prayer daily. And then let's make sure that it happens. Thank you, Greg, for being here with us. Let me ask you some thoughts on some polarizing words, for example. Your thoughts right now on, let's say, violence versus peace. 
Can I have more context? Sure. <laughs> no. <laughs> this is supposed to be poetic. You say I say violence and peace, and you say blah blah blah. No. <laughs> uh, I mean that sounds like a trap. Uh, yeah, definitely. I was trying. I was actually trying. Um, violence versus peace. How about this? People will say that you know violence is definitely not the answer, and that peace and love are the answer. What are your thoughts? Uh, it's hard to like try and move from ethical or moral or logical positions when talking about the U.S. Uh, this country was built on theft. Um, this country was built on murder and slavery. How uh, much of the wealth acquired was acquired by way of that theft. Um, in my opinion, um, it's all like fruit of the poisonous tree, which is like this term in, le in legalese about like how far does uh, like a bad act extend. But in essence, it's like, can we blame someone who is hungry for taking an opportunity to get food? Or can we blame someone who, um, for all intents, um, life is labeled a reject uh, of trying to get some of life's comforts when the opportunity presents itself? Um, how does $1,200 to every citizen, how is that supposed to help anyone for very long? It's it, it's it it just feels like everything is a setup and they're like, yeah, take this twelve hundred dollars. <laughs> and it's like they're living in the nineteen fifties and they think this will last for like months, right? Like I I I think that um until um that which was taken by way of force and like all other means of violence until that's righted. Um, I think the same like problems will continue. And um, yeah, it's, it's difficult because those who have a comfortable life don't want to give it up and fear that whatever type of reparations or repair of what happened will take them away from that or will cause them to not have the ability to secure the American dream. Um, and there's, you know, um, the black community um, has some of the highest unemployment rates. They have some of the lowest, um, like AMIs, annual, annual median income, some of the lowest um, net worths along with the indigenous community. And there's a question of why are you upset? when the government has murdered leaders of the past, when they've allowed for European Americans to roll through Black Wall Street and bomb it, when they've allowed for the many entrepreneurs and intelligent, brilliant people of the African diaspora to be lynched or shot or whatever, 
And so how do we find peace when no peace has been extended? And it's more like, get over it. We know for certain now that like PTSD moves through DNA. Um, there was a study that uh, showed that uh, children of El Salvador um, carried PTSD from the civil war that happened there, though they never actually existed during that civil war. And if that can be shown to be relevant and possible for um, you know, a decade, uh, a few decades of civil war, imagine what 400 years of violence and oppression does to a person. And then imagine telling that person that, no, you can't heal. Um, no, you can't breathe. No, you can't X, Y, Z. Stay in your line. Um, let us have a great life. Um, you'll make the American dream eventually. Just keep going as we uh, defund your schools and all of this stuff. It's, uh, yeah, I mean, something has to give. Tell me about a way forward, some successes that you see, some progress that you see lighting up the path in front of your eyes as you go through. Uh, we've already reached success. And I say that because I don't see anyone slowing down or saying that they will slow down. I see and hear a lot of now is the time. Um, let's keep going. Um, don't stop until we finish. And the fact that there are protests around the country. Uh, right now, I'm looking at a live stream that's showing DC, Colorado, Seattle, Portland, um, San Jose. Um, there have been protests in um, New Zealand and Paris and other places that are in solidarity with um, us demanding justice and accountability for what's gone on. So we're already immensely successful. And we just have to remain grounded um, and not let the powers that were uh, trick us into <laughs> the same thing that we're trying to get out of. And I really think that um, we've seen all of their tricks. Um, we know that they default to violence. And when violence doesn't work, they do some more violence. And so um, I don't think that it'll be too difficult or too long, um, but I know that it will take some effort. And we've already, um, many folks have self-selected on which part of the movement makes sense for them and how they'll continue to build it. And so um, if it's going out on the streets, uh, reposting tweets, or finding some other way to get involved, um, I hope that everyone sees this time as the time that we must do something and uh, that we take the time to figure out what it is that we're doing, whether it's telling children about this so that they know or going out to the streets, whatever it is, we must find our place if we want to actually change this. I'd prefer not to be looking back next year and saying, man, there was really a moment there that we could have captured. Um, I want to, and even if we are in that place next year, I want to know for certain that I did what I knew I had to do as my part. And so um, I hope we all do the same. You are listening to Full Circle on KPFA and KPFA.org. And we are in the middle of a conversation on co-op housing and land ownership. 
Our special guests tonight are both graduate apprentices, Sarah Blanco, and she's speaking with Greg Jackson. Let's get back to the conversation on Full Circle. Joining us now is Greg Jackson. Greg is a native of Oakland. He holds a BA in philosophy from San Diego State University and a JD from Golden Gate University School of Law. Greg focused his law school research on international cooperatives. During his internship with Sustainable Economies Law Center, he created a pilot program for youth-led cooperative development. As a 2018 Equal Justice Works Legal Fellow, Greg aims to increase collective decision-making and cooperative ownership in East Oakland. I've always enjoyed your calming spirit, and that's really why I asked you to join us. Tell us about your vision for cooperatives, and what does that really mean? Wow. Uh, Well, cooperatives are uh, businesses that are member-owned and member-benefiting. And so um, a great example of a cooperative here in Oakland is uh, Mandela Grocery Co-op across from the BART station, uh, the 7th Street BART station. And uh, worker cooperatives, the uh, people who are manning the grocery store um, are also the people that are receiving um, both salary and they're receiving um, a portion of the profits that the grocery store makes, um, which is different than you would normally uh, encounter a grocery store, say Safeway <clears throat> or Walmart, um, which recently closed like many places across the nation because they're being targeted, um, I think intentionally by a lot of protesters because Walmart has done some horrific things um, economically to communities. But anyway, um, what uh, co-ops do is they allow for the members who are inside of that co-op to be the accountability mechanism for that business. And so um, another example of a cooperative is um, Ocean Spray. Um, you'll, you've probably seen that logo everywhere. Um, they have uh, commercials all the time um, about their cranberries. And really what they do is um, they group a bunch of farmers together that grow cranberries individually and they bring them together in a cooperative so that they can reduce the cost of bringing their goods to market and also increase the cost that they'd be able to um, demand because of their market power. And um, um, after doing some research, I learned that um, Ocean Spray has about 66% or more of the cranberry market at any given time. And it's all being run cooperatively. Ocean Spray is a producer's cooperative, and that's what happens when um, all of these different individual folks are coming together to um, pull their money and resources. Um, there's also consumer cooperatives like REI. Um, if you've ever gone to buy um, equipment there um, and done it a, a few times, you'll have gotten a uh, check in the mail at the end of the year saying, thanks for shopping at REI. Um, here's your patronage dividend, which is basically whenever a cooperative gives its member Uh, some of the profits back. It's called a patronage dividend. And so there are all these different ways that um, people can come together to cooperatively provide for themselves and for the community. And we've been hosting, uh, this is the second year of our Collective Courage book club. Um, Because of the pandemic and uh, the stay-at-home orders, we're taking it online and doing it every Thursday. Or I'm sorry, we're doing it every day um, from noon to noon 30, about 20 to 30 minutes a day, um, just building the practice of always coming back to reading a bit, learning a bit, 
and making sure that we're moving forward um, wherever we want to go. Um, in our case, we want to build more cooperatives and we're wanting to build the practice within our network and within our community of returning back to learning the many awesome things that uh, folks were doing with cooperatives, um, especially in the times of the Great Depression, which is when Ella Baker and the Young Negro Cooperatives League uh, really came out with a force and um, did some amazing things that um, I think we still would, it would still feel like a really big accomplishment if we accomplished some of the things that they did. And so personally, like with Repaired Nations, um, we've been able to um, host a ton of Think Outside the Boss workshops, teaching folks the nuts and bolts of how to start a worker cooperative and what it means to govern ourselves. Uh, we've done cooperative mastermind series online where we've uh, brought together folks from across the country to share about co-ops and their experiences, both technical assistance providers and people who are working in co-ops. Uh, we've taken um, a group of folks to Ghana um, in 2019 during the year of return, um, starting to create some cooperative uh, thought partnership between us and um, our uh, African diasporans who are on the continent. Um, and right now we're um, in the middle of a real estate project seeking to um, create a space in East Oakland where a lot of the projects who have been involved in our activities the past few years um, can find a space to land, um, have non-extractive land, and be able to co-govern themselves and co-own a piece of Oakland, um, especially um, right now in the Black Cultural Zone, East Oakland, where the prices are um, in many ways the lowest in, in the city. And there's been a lot of, um, well, neighborhoods have been changing rapidly. And we wanna try and get ahead of that and uh, start to name the culture that has been present in the area and will continue to be present and do that in a cooperative spirit. We're creating the Cultural Cooperative Development Center in East Oakland, uh, focusing on the Foothill Corridor uh, between Seminary Avenue and 73rd. Uh, we're in contract with one building, um, a former aquarium that has uh, five one-bedroom apartments, about 5,000 square feet of commercial space, and a big uh, backyard uh, parking lot. Really excited to create a holistic healing hub maker space in that um, we've got about nine members who are signed up um, working with us to build out um, the ongoing things. Um, and we're also in contact with an owner on seminary and Foothill, 5,000 square foot warehouse and, a, and three um, retail storefronts. And uh, seeking to, especially in this area where a Walgreens just popped up, a really cool cafe just popped up, and it's really prime for like uh, <laughs> urban renewal. Um, wanting to get ahead of that, um, link it to the Black Cultural Zone, which is bringing a pop-up resource village to Eastmont Mall, um, which is just down the street on Foothill and really start to create a place in East Oakland where there's a high density of co-ops and we can point to existing things and say, co-ops are the future and we can tell you why. And you can go and talk to the people who are involved and they'll tell you the same thing. And then we'll, you can come back to us and, and learn the nuts and bolts. Um, but we've really uh, begun to understand that no matter how uh, great we say co-ops are, um, if someone can't find one in their community, um, then are they really that great is, is the question we have to answer. And so um, really seeking to build up the, the momentum that has been generated in the book clubs and the workshops from last year 
and empower those individuals to um, build out their cooperative enterprises um, and uh, yeah, act as a place where we can point to and model for uh, the rest of the community uh, ways that co-ops uh, really are a way that we can develop not just businesses, but real estate and neighborhoods in a way that um, is non-extractive and is mutually beneficial for all involved. When people um, own uh, their properties or co-own their properties and their businesses, they're less likely to want to pollute that and mess it up um, for the next generation because uh, co-ops and like cooperative housing um, allows for us to um, like uh, build our wealth and and pass that on to the next generation. Um, also, uh, <laughs> a lot of a lot of times, or like legally, uh, corporations are required to maximize profit, and if they're not maximizing profit, then they have uh, what can be a shareholder suit against them for not doing so. Um, and there's a case about Ford um, that uh, like the Supreme Court kind of like set this precedent. And so um, if you're dealing with a, what we call like a general stock corporation, someone like an Amazon, um, those folks have to make sure they maximize profit for their uh, shareholders. Otherwise, uh, they could get sued. Um, but co-ops um, aren't there to maximize profits for the shareholders. They're there to maximize community benefit, really. And they do that through being a worker co-op, consumer co-op, producer co-op. But there's always the concern for community embedded in that. And uh, I think that's a key distinction. Um, in the beginning, when you're starting a new co-op with people who are new to co-ops, um, almost everyone has this period where it's like, yo, people are listening to me. And what I say matters. I want to be in as much meetings as I can, and I want to give as much feedback as I can, because this feels great. <laughs> and then there's a period where you're like, whoa, everyone's saying everything. We can't process. What, what are we supposed to do? And then I think um, you, uh, a co-op naturally settles into, okay, we know that um, if we just leave it totally open, it's, it's uh, similar to chaos. But there has to be some limitations. We have to learn how to delegate. We have to learn how to trust. Like if everyone can't be in the room at the same time, but we need to make a decision, can we delegate that authority to some of our peers? Like we have to really learn that kind of stuff. And collective courage, um, two of the things that um, Jessica Gordon-Nemhart, the author, really um, uplifts is that pre-existing relationships are very important because um, if you're gonna work with someone cooperatively and go through this tough stuff, it really helps to um, you know, have that background with them and know that they're good people instead of trying to get to know them as you're trying to do this hard process that we weren't prepared for, I think on purpose. Um, and the second thing that um, like, uh, I wanna uplift from what she talks about, um, I think throughout the whole book, is that there's a need for continued education um, for any cooperative thing that we do or really anything in general, um, there's a learning curve and we have to be okay with taking the time to learn how to co-facilitate, um, learning how to express ourselves in non-violent democratic ways. We have to learn how to delegate. The list goes on. It's not just like interpersonal things that we have to learn about. We have to learn about um, how to structure our organizations and governance. We have to learn how to 
you know, maintain what we build and, and not go under. Education is constant. And to think that um, you can kind of just like sprint through it, learn it all, and then that's it, it's not really the case. Um, and so um, if you are seeking to create a housing cooperative, um, firstly, check out the East Bay Permanent Real Estate Cooperative. They're a multi-stakeholder co-op, which is like this amalgamation of all the different things I said. And um, they are focused on helping Black, Indigenous, and POC folks remain in the East Bay um, through permanently affordable real estate. And um, what you can also do is talk to your friends and say like, yo, I know you're paying money for rent. I'm paying money for rent. Why don't we put our money together and purchase something? But if you want to like do it in a way where maybe you don't like your friends and you want new friends, that's going to take a minute. Like you can't just like build a co-op with new people right away and think that it'll work without a hitch. You know, so um, those are my suggestions. If you need legal advice, go to the Legal Cafe by the Sustainable Economies Law Center. They are hosted three times a month. Um, they're all online right now because of the COVID stuff. Um, there's also cooplaw.org where you can go to find templates for articles of incorporations or bylaws. You'll need the articles of incorporation to um, tell the Secretary of State that you want to create a California Cooperative Corporation or an LLC. I mean, you'll also need bylaws or operating agreements, depending on which entity you choose, to structure the internal mechanisms of your organization, at least high level. And you can find some of that stuff there. I feel like I just said a lot of information, and I hope that it's helpful in some way. Thank you very much, Greg. We'd hope to have you back as you progress in your different projects. And anytime that you want to share anything about the community and for the community. Thank you, Sarah, for having me. Um, I appreciate y'all so much. Take care. Thank you. And that brings us to the end of tonight's show. Remember to check out our website at kpfaapprentice.org just a little after the show for relevant links and information related to tonight's show. Our executive producer is Miss M. Our technical director is myself, Frank Sterling. I have also been your host tonight. Joy Moore is our production consultant. Special shout out to Miss M, Sarah Blanco, and Greg Jackson for contributing to the show tonight. They are all graduates of the First Voice Apprenticeship Program here at KPFA. And that's it for me tonight, Freewell and Franklin. To everyone out there, please protect your health and your humanity. And I'll see you next time. Stay tuned. Up next is La Onda Bajita. Peace.